The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason Deroshi, Research Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. You can find more from Dr. Deroshi at www.jasonderoshi.com. Well, I delight in this opportunity to supply this year's Hugh D. Brown Lectures, and I want to thank Brother Edwin and his team for this invitation. My overarching title is Rejoicing in Hope, Understanding and Applying Zephaniah. I've just completed seven and a half years in this book, and I am eager to share with you some of the glories that God has allowed me to see. Of Zephaniah, Luther declared, among the minor prophets, he makes the clearest prophecies about the kingdom of Christ. Much earlier, the Apostle Peter had said, God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, including Zephaniah, that his Christ would suffer. And then he adds, all the prophets proclaimed these days of the church. Acts 3, 18 and 24. I ask you to pray with me as we enter into this time together. Sovereign Savior of the world, who overcomes night with light and satisfies the humble with abundant life in your presence. Meet us in these hours. For the sake of your name, Lord Christ, open your word that we may behold dreadful and glorious things that can help us seek you together and wait for you to act finally and decisively as you have already acted initially and truly. We praise you for our great salvation and the hope that is ours in Christ. Amen. Open your Bible, if you will, please, to the book of Zephaniah, a brief 53-verse book that one scholar has tagged the climax of the 12 minor prophets. This book portrays the day of the Lord in furious fire, a fire that consumes God's enemies and purifies a multi-ethnic community of worshipers for a transformed Zion. Note the superscription in 1.1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. The prophecy's nature. It's a word. A living and authoritative word. Why? Because its source is Yahweh. In this book, Yahweh is king over all things. He stands as a mighty warrior. A warrior who commands armies, who will famish all the gods of the earth, and whose just jealousy for the world's allegiance blazes like fire and will consume every inhabitant. The prophecy's messenger, a certain Zephaniah, whose five-person genealogy shows that he has royal lineage, for his great-great-grandfather was the reformer, King Hezekiah. Not only this, because his father was Cushy, Zephaniah was likely biracial. Cush was ancient black Africa. And Zephaniah's grandmother was likely an African who married into the Jewish royal line and then named her son Myblacky, 
celebrating his ethnic heritage. Support for this view comes in the fact that Zephaniah shows a unique interest in Cush, for it's the only region he uses as an example of his multi-ethnic global restoration at the end of the age, chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. As a biracial prophet, Zephaniah's life displayed the hope of a diversified people of God in fulfillment of Yahweh's promises to Abraham that blessing would reach the ends of the earth. Finally, the prophecy's historical backdrop. What we learn is that it took place during the reign of King Josiah of Judah, whom Yahweh redeemed from the depraved darkness of his father Ammon's reign, and who instituted a spiritual reform that Zephaniah's preaching helps promote. This book supplies the Savior's invitation to satisfaction. In this first lecture, I hope to overview the setting for the Savior's invitation and then consider stage one of the invitation itself. So let's begin. This lecture, Seek the Lord Together to Avoid Punishment, focused on Zephaniah, 1, 1 through 3, 7. Chapter 1 provides the setting for the book's main exhortations that begin in chapter 2. Chapter 1 does this by calling readers to revere the Lord in view of the nearness and nature of his impending wrath on Judah and the rest of the world. 1, 2 through 6 provides the context for the call to revere God, and then 7 through 18 provides the makeup of this call. So the context of the call to revere God, verses 2 through 6 in chapter 1. We start in verses one, uh, 2 and 3. I will surely gather, ESV, sweep away. I will surely gather everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will gather man and beast. I'll gather the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now, you may rightly hear echoes of the original global flood narrative in Genesis 6, verse 7. You may also notice that Yahweh's judicial assessment moves from man to beast to birds to fish which is exactly the opposite of the order in which God created them. Thus, Zephaniah paints the coming destruction as a decreation back toward chaos. The rubble that God will destroy with the wicked are likely idols. Zephaniah opens with this global universal scope, but lest his audience in Judah think that they might escape, he then turns attention directly toward them in verses 4 through 6. We move from universal, global catastrophe to local destruction. Look at verse 4. I'll stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. Yahweh's earthly address was Jerusalem. Yet at the very location of his temple palace dwelt a holdout of those worshiping, not Yahweh, but Baal, the Canaanite 
storm and fertility deity. While English translations vary, the Hebrew of chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, suggests to me that the remnant of Baal included four overlapping groups. Consider first the idolatrous priests along with the priests in 1-4-C. These are the illegitimate non-Levitical clergy who led in worship of idols and who served alongside the legitimate priests who failed to teach God's law, guard knowledge, and preserve what was holy. Number two, those who bowed down on the roofs to the host of the heaven, one five. These are the star worshipers. And such a group continue, was a, a significant trouble to with, within Judah during these days. We read about them often in 2 Kings 17, 21, Jeremiah 19. Number three, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, or likely better, their king. That is, those who pay lip service to Yahweh, swearing to him, but who give their highest allegiance to another God. They swear by another God. Zephaniah 1.5. And finally, verse 6, now fourth group that shapes the remnant of Baal, those who turn back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire him, of him. That is, those living self-ruled, self-dependent lives. To turn back from following the Lord always refers to covenant infidelity, which the people were demonstrating by failing to rely on God, by not wanting to know his will or his word, by not praying to him, by failing to seek him and inquire of him. Elsewhere, in 2 Kings 23, we learn that Josiah's reforms sought to eradicate all four of these problems. What's clear is that Yahweh is no respecter of persons. You may be a priest or a commoner, but if you choose to turn from him, condemnation will surely come. The makeup of the call to revere God, beginning in verse 7. This is the heart of the setting section of Zephaniah's book. Like a herald preparing courtiers for a king's arrival, Zephaniah urges his audience to revere the Lord. Because of the temporal nearness and sacrificial nature of Yahweh's impending punishment against both Jerusalem and the world. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Notice how the impending nature of Yahweh's day is not the main point. Rather, within this book, every image of darkness and light, of devastation and delight, serves as a motivation for the prophet's exhortations. In 1.7, it comes not in the form of a command, but in the form of a Hebrew exclamation, hush, be silent. Listeners need to revere God. Why? The rest of verse 7 tells us, For the day of the Lord is near. 
Throughout the prophets, the phrase, the day of Yahweh, Yom Yahweh, and its abbreviated parallels, the day, this day, that day, refer to the ultimate time when God will punish and restore the whole world, but also to the periodic penultimate days that clarify and anticipate it. That is, the day of the Lord includes both God's final and decisive move to execute justice and reestablish right order across the entire world, but also to the number, uh, numerous historical foretastes of this end time wherein God restores peace by judging wickedness, not only throughout the whole world, but also specifically of Judah and Israel. Zephaniah anticipates the Lord's Day in both of these respects. In 1-7, with the statement, the day of the Lord is near, he introduces a unit that runs all the way to verse 13, all focused on the imminent and localized punishment, I believe, that Babylon will bring upon Jerusalem in 586. So we see Zephaniah identify specific locations in Jerusalem. Look at verse 10. On that day, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Or again in verse 12, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, catching them unexpectedly, and I'll punish the men who are complacent. So we have these regions, known regions, in the city of Jerusalem. This is a localized focus when he declares the day of the Lord is near. This punishment will not only hit all spheres of Jerusalem, it'll hit every class in Jerusalem. Notice, for example, how he targets the political leaders in 1.8. I'll punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. That is, the political leaders who are being influenced by outside forces. Religious leaders, in 1-9, on that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. Uh, potentially recall um, what the Philistine priest did when Dagon's statue fell and shattered right over the threshold of the temple. They, they would jump over it. Uh, so this may be some superstitious activity linked up with the Philistines. On that day, I'll punish everyone who leaps over the threshold, those who fill their master's house with violence and with fraud. Now, up in verse 7, God was called Sovereign Yahweh. And now we read of their sovereign's house, suggesting to me that we're looking at the temple and that it was the priests who were engaged in violence and fraud against God's people. But it's not just the political and religious elite in the city, it's the commoner as well. As we read in verse 12, God's going to search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. The complacent are the everyday folks. Anyone who fails to fear God's wrath or desire his blessings. They're those who live like deists or perhaps practical atheists. 
where the Lord is not really watching, they believe. They don't think he really cares. Nevertheless, Yahweh's day against Jerusalem was near. And because of this, Zephaniah's audience needed to revere God. Now, this localized punishment would be matched by a more ultimate, global, eschatological punishment. Compare with me verse 7 with the wording of verse 14. In verse 7, the day of the Lord is near. Verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near. At 114, we switch from the localized punishment of Jerusalem in 586 to the global eschatological judgment coming on the entire world at the end of the age. Note the broader scope in 117. I will bring distress on mankind. Then again, the end of verse 18. In the fire of my jealousy, all the earth will be consumed. For a full and sudden end, he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Those listening to Zephaniah need to revere God. Brothers and sisters, let your hearts tremble before the presence of the living God. The preemptive, typological day against Jerusalem has already come. And because it's already come, it should prove to us that what God has promised regarding the great ultimate day will also come. The Lord takes sin seriously. He must because he is just. He will pour out his fury against all forms of rebellion. Thus he declares in 117, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind. Why? Because they have sinned against the Lord. There it is. Where there is sin, there will be retribution. Because God is just, he must hate sin, identify sin, and then punish every sin. Within this book, the objects of God's wrath include the idolatrous and the self-led, the scriptureless and the prayerless, the conceited and oppressive, the apathetic and the passionless, the deaf and the unresponsive, the trustless and self-dependent. They sit indifferent and self-righteous, with neither concern for God's judgment nor a longing for his blessing. Chaff is chaff, regardless of where it is found. And though in Zephaniah's Judah, the holdout of faithful was mixed with the majority of rabble, on the day of wrath, God will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire, Matthew 3. God will eradicate all forms of iniquity, whether idolatry, syncretism, and self-rule, violence, deception, and complacency, pride, vain boasts, and taunting, rebellion, defilement, and oppression, resistance, unresponsiveness, and shameless treachery and abuse. Indeed, just like he did at the flood, he will gather and destroy all who fail to fear him. 
but instead multiply their corruption. The warrior king will decisively enter, removing arrogance from his city and eliminating those who've afflicted her. He will cleanse the earth and reconstitute the mountain of his holiness for his presence. And when he comes, brothers and sisters, the day will be unexpected and filled with cataclysm, conquest, and sacrifice. I want to consider each of these characteristics of Yahweh's day. The day as cataclysm. With echoes of the Lord's encounter with Adam and Eve in the garden. And then with his appearance before Israel at Mount Sinai to establish the Old Covenant. Zephaniah and the other biblical prophets often associate Yahweh's day, that is the day of wrath, with darkness and wind, earthquake and clouds. Look with me at verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. What type of day is it? Verse 15. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. The foreboding images of tempest and shadow, gloom and quaking, display Yahweh's fierce and impending presence, and they highlight the nearness of his day of destruction against both individuals and nations. Whereas many in Israel envision the day of the Lord to be one of light, the prophets go out of their way to declare that for the rebellious, it will be night. Here's Amos chapter 5. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. It is darkness and not light. When God enters into our space and time, the natural forces react. Storms awaken. The ground quakes. Here's Isaiah 29. You will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. With Joel, we need to declare the, the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Such depictions of the Lord's day should cause our hearts to tremble. Brothers and sisters, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The day as conquest. The darkness of Yahweh's day of fury may at times refer not to storm, but to the sensory experience of dying as a victim of divine war. On the day of the Lord, the lights of life indeed go out for the enemies of God. Thus, Zephaniah portrayed this day as one of distress and anguish, ruin and devastation, darkness and gloom, cloud and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements, verses 15 and 16. These images recall God's conquest against Canaan. They portray his day of wrath as a more ultimate conquest, wherein the Lord is reestablishing a new and global promised land. 
We see also in 113, language of curse against the Canaanites from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. That's imagery of what God promised to do against Canaan. Yet now the imagery is being applied to Judah, who in following Baal have become like the Canaanites and will receive their same destruction. Associated with Yahweh's day are, are common terms linked with war. Verses 10 and 11, you have cries of pain and wails of terror, loud crashes, tumult. Verse 16, trumpet blast. Verse 14, the, day, the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter as the mighty one, Yahweh, the great warrior, cries aloud there. Joel 2, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. The day as sacrifice. After highlighting the nearness of the day of the Lord, Zephaniah grounds his declaration in the reality that God had prepared a sacrifice, Zephaniah 1.7. Atonement reestablishes right order in this world. Atonement doesn't only relate to the death of a substitute, it also relates to the death of the sinner. God reestablishes right order by killing either of the two. In Zephaniah 3.2, we learn that a key problem in Zephaniah's Jerusalem was that the city had failed to draw near to her God. By failing to draw near to the Lord, principally through his provision of a substitute sacrifice, those in Jerusalem and beyond had readied themselves to become the sacrifice. Sacrificial fires are nothing less than a divine war against wickedness. In those early chapters of Leviticus, what is God doing? War! War against sin. Hence, after describing the day with cataclysmic and conquest imagery, God stressed, look at verse 17, I will bring distress on mankind because they've sinned against the Lord. Then in verse 18, he appropriates images of sacrifice to describe what he will do against his enemies. Actually, verse 17 and 18. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. That's what the priests would do to the sacrifices. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth will be consumed. Zephaniah and other prophets commonly associate fire with the day of the Lord, and it aligns well with these portrayals of the day of the Lord as cataclysm and conquest and sacrifice. With this, both Jeremiah and Ezekiel compare God's punishment of his enemies on the day of the Lord with sacrifice. Jeremiah 46, Ezekiel 39. The blended images of war and sacrifice depict the way that God will justly secure atonement and reestablish right order in his world. 
This is the goal of the day of the Lord, to reestablish a Sabbath-like rest on a global scale where God is on the throne and he's at peace with all those around him. Christ is the agent of Yahweh's final day. Jesus spoke of the future day of judgment, wherein God would judge all people according to their deeds, Matthew 12. Indeed, he says, all those on earth will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory, Matthew 24. And at this time, Jesus says, the Son of Man will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect using the same language that we saw in Zephaniah 1, 2, and 3. All that, Matthew 24. Jesus associates Zephaniah's great day of ingathering with his own second coming and with the great resurrection that will happen at the end of the age, a resurrection that will be unexpected for those who are in darkness. As Zephaniah foresaw, at this time, Christ will gather the nations, all of them, to himself, and he will separate the wicked from the righteous. He'll punish the wicked with unquenchable fire, but the righteous he will welcome, and he'll feast with them. John tagged the culminating battle of the ages, the great day of the God Almighty, Revelation 16, and the great day of their wrath, of which he queried, who can stand? Revelation 6. In keeping with Zephaniah's presentation of the day of the Lord, Zephaniah 1.7, John also envisioned the results of this final war against evil would be a sacrificial feast that the birds would devour. Revelation 19. Peter stressed, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. 2 Peter 3. He then adds that for those in darkness, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Christ's second coming fulfills in part Zephaniah's vision of global destruction at the end of the age. God takes sin seriously, and so should we. We move now to the substance of the Savior's invitation. This is the primary exhortation section of Zephaniah's book, and it comes to us in two stages. We're going to look at stage one. Seek the Lord together. Zephaniah 2.1 to 3.7. Having established the need to revere the Lord, Zephaniah ships from the setting of the Savior's invitation to satisfaction to its actual substance. He signals this first by a lack of conjunction. There's no connection between chapter 2 and chapter 1. It just begins with the imperative, gather or bundle together. Not only this, though, it's in this unit that we get the first imperatives in the book. The primary exhortation 
as I said, comes in two stages. Stage one includes this charge to bundle together in submission, two, one, and two. And then in two, three, you get the charge to seek the Lord in righteousness and humility. All this is then followed by two parallel reasons to seek the Lord together in 2.5 to 3.7. So we begin this charge to bundle together in submission to the Lord. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Zephaniah here addresses his primary audience in Judah as a shameless nation, or very literally, a nation, the nation, not longing, not longing for Yahweh. They're complacent and care little about him. He urges his listeners to gather together using a Hebrew root that's usually associated with collecting straw or sticks in the context of punishment. But here the context is more positive. As a people collect desirable straw or grain after separating the chaff, the faithful remnant must bundle themselves in unity. They need to separate from everything that is destined for God's fires of wrath. Before the day takes effect, gather together, unite yourselves, bundle yourselves, because the wrath is coming. The anger of the Lord will burn. This repetition of the preposition before emphasizes that the time to repent is fleeting. And God's hammering on this language of the anger of the Lord, the anger of the Lord, stresses the need to repent. It's serious. Now we come to verse 3, the charge to seek the Lord in righteousness and humility. In addition to the two imperatives in chapter 2, 1, we now get three more imperatives in chapter 2, verse 3. Having addressed the nation broadly, the prophet now narrows his focus to the remnant of the land who have already humbled themselves and already gathered before the Lord. That this remnant remains unnamed, and because in 2.5 and 2.12 the prophet actually addresses foreign nations it suggests to me that while the primary focus is a faithful remnant from Judah, it can also include any from the world who are willing to listen to Zephaniah's plea. Seek the Lord, Zephaniah says. All you humble of the land who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Now, in contrast to the ESV, the Hebrew suggests to me that the prophet regards the remnant not as those who have followed the Lord's commands, plural, but as those who are humbly taking seriously his coming judgment, singular. I translate the beginning of 2-3 as this, seek Yahweh, 
all the humble of the land who have heeded his judgment. In this book, the Lord's judgment relates to the day of reckoning that he has declared against the world. Zephaniah addresses 2-3 to those who have already revered God, chapter 1-7, to those who've already heeded his call to bundle, 2-1. It's these that the prophet charges, seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility. Now, according to 1-6, the remnant of Baal were those who didn't seek the Lord or inquire of him. In contrast, the humble are those who turn from self-reliance to surrender. Zephaniah explicates his call to seek the Lord from two angles. Look with me at 2-3. First, having spurned the chaos of injustice and rebellion in the land, those humbled before God should seek righteousness. Pursuing righteousness is to align one's life with right order, both in the cosmos and in the community, such that one values God and values his image in other people. To pursue righteousness is to engage in love for God and love for neighbor. Jesus urged those who were his followers to seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. Similarly here, Zephaniah urges those already enjoy, enjoying a relationship with God to now see the fruits of righteous deeds evident in their own lives. Second, to seek the Lord means seeking humility. A life of humility is a life of dependence on God. The humble life receives from his hand without fighting against his providence. It embraces one's neediness and it follows God's lead. In Peter's words, knowing that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, we need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, trusting that in the proper time he will exalt us. Only those who seek the Lord, who seek righteousness and humility, may be hidden from Yahweh's coming fury. Now, often the prophets use qualifiers like perhaps to help hearers hope in but not presume on divine favor. We should not read here any limiting of Zephaniah's knowledge or any uncertainty regarding God's response toward repentance. Yahweh's merciful character is unchanging. His promises are sure. And Zephaniah elsewhere emphasizes the, the authentic, true reality that a remnant will be preserved and that God will reconcile those who have sought him together, he will reconcile them to himself. Now, why should people seek the Lord? Verse 4, seek the Lord, seek righteousness and humility, because I'm going to destroy the four main Philistine cities. What's going on there? What's the logic? Well, here's what I think is going on. 
Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. Because my judgment is going to fall directly on your neighbors to the west. And you shouldn't think that you're going to escape. At this, Zephaniah steps back and in two sections, each beginning with woe. Look at verse 5. Woe to you inhabitants of the seacoast. Then chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled. In verses 5 through 15, Zephaniah focuses on the state and fate, the lamentable state and fate of the rebels from around Jerusalem. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, he focuses on the state and fate of the rebels in Jerusalem. And both of these woe units provide an unmarked reason why those in Judah and beyond, the faithful remnant who are hearing God, why those in Judah and beyond should seek the Lord together. Because of the lamentable state and fate of the rebels of the world. Now that's as much as I can say about the verses 2, 5 through 3, 7 at this time. What I want to do now is just step back and consider our proper response to what we've seen so far. I have three responses. Number one. Allow the seriousness of the Lord's day to move you to revere him. Zephaniah 1 portrays a God who demands reverence. Hush before the Lord God, 1-7. This God is justly jealous and has flames of wrath. He confronts all affronts to his holiness. His justice shows no prejudice, and his punishment is both terrible and complete. Whereas some may want to minimize certain sins, Zephaniah simply asserts that any sin demands the full rage of Yahweh's anger. The words the prophet uses to describe the outbreak of God's wrath are just breathtaking. A day of wrath and distress, anguish, ruin, devastation, darkness, gloom, cloud, thick darkness, trumpet blast, battle cry. Can, can things be more ominous? Paul asserted that Christ will come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not heed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. 2 Thessalonians 1. How dreadful to have the source of all power and the very upholder of all life working against you. Brothers and sisters, I urge you today, revere God. Number two. Commune regularly with other believers to aid one another's perseverance. The masculine plural imperatives in Zephaniah 2, 1, and 3 stress the individual responsibility of heeding God's commands. 
Yet those heeding Zephaniah's charges are are to fulfill them together. No believer is to seek the Lord alone. This is why Zephaniah's initial charge opens by calling those who will listen to bundle themselves, to make a bundle. God's coming punishment will explode on the earth. Yet in his love, he wants people not to feel isolated, but to find strength in united surrender. We must seek the Lord together. The writer of Hebrews urged his readers, exhort one another every day, Hebrews 3. And then in Hebrews 10, consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day is the ultimate day of the anger of the Lord to which Zephaniah points. Partnership with other believers, seen especially through active local church membership, helps us continue to grow in holiness, which properly prepares us to see the Lord when he comes. Finally, number three, continue seeking the Lord, pursuing righteousness and humility. Alec Motier has rightly noted, in the Bible, the only way to flee from God is to flee to God. Zephaniah yearns for his audience to be free from the fear of death to experience the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He thus urges his audience to hunger for the Lord with a proper orientation of life, righteousness, and with a proper disposition of the heart, humility. Treasuring God should awaken love for others and nurture a sense of personal need for something more than the world can offer. So to seek the Lord by pursuing righteousness and humility, we need to first turn from self-reliance and self-exaltation to radical God-dependence and God-exaltation. With John the Baptist, we each must say, he must increase, but I must decrease. In our piety and ministry, we need to serve in God's strength, not our own, and seek God's commendation over that of men. In our suffering, we should not be anxious about tomorrow, but must be casting all of our anxieties upon God, believing that he truly cares for us. In our victories, we ought to declare, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And when we boast, we need to boast only in the Lord, knowing that God only commends those who celebrate that Jesus became to us, Jesus became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The impoverished, not the proud, engage in prayer and in praise. And by these God-treasuring acts, we magnify the Lord's greatness and his sufficiency. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And only in seeking the Lord is there any hope for protection on his day of wrath. Second, 
To truly seek the Lord by seeking righteousness and humility requires living impartial and loving lives rather than abusive ones. We must image God's character and value his image in others. Too easily, our God-given proficiencies and power and possessions move us to forget the Lord as the great giver of all things. And it can move us to elevate ourselves over others, even at their expense. This was the case in Zephaniah's day. Outsiders taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts, chapter 2. Insiders, especially leaders, shamelessly engaged in violence and fraud, and like wild beasts began to feast on the very ones they were called to shepherd and protect. In contrast, Zephaniah 3.5 declares, Yahweh is righteous. He never does wrong. Morning by morning, he gives his judgment for the light. The Lord is the one who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. And knowing him means that we will mirror in practice his delight in such things. So with Paul, brothers and sisters, I close urging you in this way. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, 2 Timothy 2. It's this type of living that Zephaniah meant by seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message from Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Research Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Dr. Jason DeRoshi. For more information about Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, we invite you to visit www.mbts.edu. For more writing, sermons, and lectures from Dr. DeRoshi, please visit www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.